Today's episode is brought to you by Marlene Van Niekerk's Agat, a novel Toni Morrison called As Brilliant as It is Haunting, a deeply layered saga of resilience, loyalty, and betrayal. Agat explores the decades-long relationship between a wealthy white woman and her black maidservant beginning in 1940s apartheid South Africa. In complex and devastating ways, the power shifts between the two women over the years, mirroring the historic upheavals happening around them and revealing a shared lifetime of hopes, sacrifices, and control. Books like Agat, said the New York Times Book Review, are the reason people read novels and the reason authors write them. A special 10th anniversary edition of Agat which includes an introduction from Mary Gateskill and an interview with Toni Morrison, is out now from Tin House. Somehow, as you listen to this in mid-December 2020, we've come upon the 10-year anniversary of the Between the Covers podcast. When I was an undergraduate, I had a brief stint as a 3 a.m. to 5 a.m., radio DJ in Boulder, Colorado. And many years later, when I finished graduate school in Portland, Oregon, I explored the local community radio station in the hopes of reliving those days of playing music on the radio. But those slots were super coveted, and you had to become a long-term volunteer, earn your stripes, and hope for an opening, an opportunity, which may or may not happen. I decided to get involved at the radio. I got trained as a volunteer engineer and worked on the soundboard for an environmental public affairs call-in show and eventually got asked to host a health show, which I did for many years, interviewing doctors and herbalists and healers and nutritionists and social scientists. But after a decade plus, I confess it actually got pretty boring for me. Because unlike with literature, once I read a book on, let's say, herbal approaches to menopause, even a very well-written one, I would usually know once I read it what the guest was going to say before I asked the question. The questions felt much like the books. They delivered information and didn't feel dynamic enough to sustain my interest, except with writers like Michael Pollan or Atul Gawande or Sandra Steingraber or Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote books that weren't just manuals or how-tos, but which asked existential questions, or they wrote with an attention to language and its potential for the lyric. So when the book show, the same radio station, suddenly needed help, I thought I'd give it a try. And I should say here, I was given an encouraging push by a friend and fellow writer, Laura Moulton, who now runs a nonprofit that she created from the ground up called Street Books, a bicycle-powered mobile library for the homeless here in Portland, Oregon, that provides books, reading glasses, and community around a shared love of literature. So shout out to Laura and to Street Books, which you can find at streetbooks.org. And also a shout out to Anthony Dorr, who was the first person I interviewed about books. 
At that point, I was, yes, a longtime reader, but I'd only barely begun writing a handful of years ago at that point and had no idea if I could talk to a novelist or a short story writer in any sort of meaningful way. Dor wasn't the household name he is now, so I didn't have to battle any intimidation around celebrity. But I do wonder if he hadn't been so kind and encouraging and so delighted after each of my questions whether I'd be doing this here now 10 years later. It seems fitting that I'm doing something on the show today for the first time ever as I mark this 10-year anniversary, not just honoring the decade-long journey, but also breaking the mold and shaking things up. Today is the first ever part two of the show, not a second conversation with a writer who's been on before, who's returning for another book, something that happens once or twice a year, not a second episode, but instead a second part, a return to a conversation to re-enter it and extend it. With some writers, there's a sense of sadness for me when I'm left with compelling questions unasked because either the conversation went a different direction or simply because of time. Sometimes if a guest returns years later, those questions become fertilizer for a future conversation, but usually they just return to the void. But this time, when I finished my conversation with Natalie Diaz and realized, even as we had talked for two and a half hours, that I felt like there were places still to go, places to dwell, things to unearth, I decided to reach out to Natalie and see if she'd be open to coming back and talking some more. It would be easy to sort of slap on the word epic to our now four and a half hours together when you combine part one and two, but epic isn't the right word, at least not for me. That amount of time or the illusion of timelessness created by it allowed for a certain attentiveness to occur. There was nothing long about it, but its length made it particularly spacious. This conversation doesn't exactly depend upon part one. You can listen to it without it, but it does extend from it. And with some frequency, we refer back to it. So I will include the link to part one in the show notes. And if you want the ideal experience, it's probably best to start there. Also, for part one, Natalie contributed a reading from Jorge Luis Borges' Book of Imaginary Beings for the Bonus Audio Archive. To find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio and about the wide variety of other potential benefits and rewards for becoming a listener supporter from supporter-only emails with each episode full of resources, links to things referred to in the conversation, and further avenues to explore, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 advanced copies of Tin House books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. All of this and more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now, 
part two of my conversation with Natalie Diaz about post-colonial love poem. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Welcome back to Between the Covers for part two of our conversation, Natalie, which is a first for the show. And I usually feel like most conversations that I have on the show start to drop to a lower energy around 90 or 100 minutes, not surprisingly. And I don't want to speak for you, but to me, it felt like our conversation last time or the first part of this conversation unmoored itself from time. And I, I thought we could have kept going and felt like there was a whole area yet to explore if we had. And it, in a strange way, I feel like the fact that we're able to talk again today beyond your, your generous willingness to um, is one of those um, upsides of everything having gone virtual during the pandemic that we're able to dilate the moment somehow because of this weird virtuality of everything. Yeah, no, it, it feels lucky to me. I, I, t I feel like I tend to finally get settled in. I'm always a little bit late to, to fully kind of relax. So, well, at the beginning of, of our last conversation, I brought up how every time that I saw you read, I looked forward to how you would bring up different words, words that were often invested with goodwill and, and, and question or trouble them like citizen, goodness, empathy, truth. And that we, that I wanted to, to use as an entryway to our last conversation, the words in the title of your collection, post-colonial love poem. And I felt like we spent a lot of time on post-colonial and on love and on post-colonial love, but I didn't feel like we spent as much time on poem. And I wanted to return to post-coloniality and love from the vantage point of poem, of writing poetry under occupation. And some of the questions you raised last time about participation versus complicity when living under occupation. So I wanted to take these questions into first how you orient yourself to poetic lineage and to an ancestry within poetry. And, and I'm going to read a quote by Herberto Yepes, who we, we talked a little bit about last time. And this is a quote he said about the forefather of the American poetry canon, Walt Whitman. He said, Whitman was very American. Free verse means having no meters, no limits, respecting no borders, 
Free verse breaks the territories, makes it bigger. Free verse was how poetry materialized on the page the imperialism of the United States. Free verse explains how Mexico was robbed of half its territory through a takeover, an expansion of the map of the United States. In fact, Whitman supported that war. And I know for you with basketball, you don't trace its origins to a 19th century New England YMCA gym, but rather to to pre-Columbian ball games. And I, I guess I wondered how you placed yourself within or against received poetic forms and traditions as both an American and a Native American poet. I feel really lucky for, you know, because I did the MFA. Um, and I know there's a lot of critique around the MFA program, how MFA programs began, you know, State Department, things like that. Um, I would not have become a poet if I didn't do the MFA. Um, my life, my life was just built very differently. I was still an athlete. I still had a responsi- a responsibility. Um, and, and what I mean by that is not, uh, a task I wanted to avoid, but it, it's something a little bit more relational than that. You know, I had a home that I knew I was absent from, you know, so, um, and so there's something about when you, when you realize you are absent from someplace, what that means about your relationship to it, it in a way it's home is always drawing me back. Mm-hmm. So, um, I would have continued either to play basketball or, or most likely to return home. Instead, I, when I hurt my knee, I decided to do the MFA program. And I feel really lucky for that, the experience I had uh, with Tim Siebel's, Luis C. Gloria, you know, my, my professors there, because I, they didn't give me a prescription of what it meant to be a native poet. I, or a poet in general, right? You know, it was really, it was really lucky that I did not have white poetry professors. Mm. Um, and that, that I had someone from diaspora and someone who has, um, you know, a, a, a troubled relationship with the, you know, the country. Um, and so I just had this incredible, um, I don't even want to say freedom, right? Because it, it just feels like a generosity that I could, I could find the language that I needed. And I was exposed to so many different writers from so many different countries. I think it was probably poetry and translation that uh, was my first real gift and entry into what poetry means to me now. Um, you know, I, I struggle a little bit with the academy. Um, I struggle with, uh, and, and what I mean by that is it's a, it's a, it's a literal struggle. Like I, I find myself in spaces that I do feel are very academy centric. And in other ways, I also feel the ways that my poetry will never fit into that academy space. So I, you know, I, I see the currency, I, literally Natalie, you know, and then of course my work, um, I see that, I see what I am in those spaces. Um, 
you know, where Yep is, is talking about Walt Whitman. Like I've, you know, I mean, how many, how many uh, social media arguments have there been about Walt Whitman and, you know, like Mark Doty, you know, good guy. So this is, it's also, so I'm going to say names here, but of course you're not allowed to do that in American poetry because if you mention a name, it, it means immediately that, I don't know, you want to go to battle with them. And, and I don't mean this. I mean, people are people, but what I'm talking about are ideas right now. But the idea that Walt Whitman is um, the quintessential subversive poet, American poet. Um, and and what one of the reasons why that kind of irks me, right, is is, of course, us knowing, we, you know, we, we've heard and read and seen the things that Whitman said about natives, about Indians, about Mexicans, about, you know, like, yes, he went and, uh, you know, swathed the uh, bleeding bodies of the young soldiers. Like, yes, he did that at, you know, at the hospitals. And those people were at war with, with bodies he didn't believe were human. They were only bodies. They were only bodies on top of lands. Um, and there's also, I think, something that that when I think about my work, um, the place that I feel like I'm locking horns in a way that I that, that also exhausts me is in the the space of desire. That um, that because the the white male um, hetero cis body is not and never will be the center of my desire that my work will always be de de-escalated in some way. I don't mind that it's decentered. That's fine. But it, there, it always seems to be an effort to diminish that aspect of my work. Um, and that it's something that I feel, and that's what I mean about the wrestling. Um, and this is not something I actually talk much about in public but it's something I kind of tend to keep in my inner circle. Um, but, but it's something that I feel like it's more and more present now because I feel like it, it, it is now a part of the choices I have to make in terms of how I'm going to continue to move through the, the world as a poet, like what, you know, um, and, and I'm lucky I have so many opportunities and options to do that. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, some of like, and, and some of what, you know, he's talking about with like, you know, the idea of free verse um, and just, you know, early on, like all, a lot of the ways that I've played with form, even still the way I play with form, though form is not uh, the end result of some of the poems that I'm messing with, um, you know, and in some ways I'm very, I'm very etymologically traditional in terms of the ways that I've traced every word that I use in, in the book, um, and, you know, followed it back to its, you know, its first meanings, its, uh, you know, misunderstood meanings, its, um, blurred, obsolete, um, you know, contemporary popular meanings. Well, I, when you say that you struggle with the Academy, there, there are so many ways in which I f feel your desire to, break the poetry outside of the academy and one of them is 
you said that you, you learned poetry from your mother, even though she was denied poetry. You also recently had a series of tweets about your father, who you say isn't a great reader and has trouble with text, um, but has been a, a great influence on your poetics. So could, could you talk about these poets who were denied poetry, people who are part of not only part of your family tree, but seem to be part of your poetic family tree. Yeah. And, and I, I guess that's the interesting thing, right. About like, what is poetry? And maybe, maybe the most important question, the one we don't often ask is where is poetry? Mm. You know, like, why is it only in the places where, where we can be the center of it and be lauded for it? When, when the, the first, the first gift of it is never that applause right that first gift is is i as a reader or i as you know the person crouched over the notebook or or you know reciting lines in my head um and so just thinking about that uh, like there is no word for poetry in in my mojave language although there's what i consider the practice of poetry which is intentionality which is uh you know, pleasure, the pleasure of telling, um, you know, the, the, the pain and joy of, of remembering in language. Um, my mom is, uh, uh, has been known for her ghost stories, for example, Mm. you know, and, uh, and they're like, her ghost stories are things that I'm, I don't necessarily care for them because I think they're a lot scarier than, uh, I mean, because they're real, right? They could really happen. Um, but, you know, the ways that, that my family talks and the ways that we tell stories to one another and of one another, um, and, you know, that's definitely like influenced the ways that I tell a story, you know, that the, the always presence of humor um, that's always there, whether, you know, we categorize a dark humor or light humor but just the, the always possibility of humor, um, you know, the ability to uh, shift at any given moment, you know, and, and turn toward uh, what feels painful and then very quickly to turn away from it toward what reminds you of what's on the other side of that pain or what came before it. Um, my father, uh, my father, it just came to reading very late. And so uh, his he's not a a very great reader. Like he doesn't read books or anything like that. Um, but he likes to write. And, um, so that's been something really interesting is that he's kind of, uh, he's always wanting to show me something he has written, you know, and, uh, wants me to kind of type it up for him. Um, but, but I think maybe something about poetry that, uh, you know, I think we talk about it a lot, right? Like we, we find our friendships among it, uh, you know, among poetry, we have like our crew or we have our people, we have like, um, you know, like a lot of my best friends are poets now. Um, and, but I think what makes me remember some of that is just, you know, we've spent a lot of time back home during this, this shutdown time, um, during the pandemic time, but just being around my family and hearing the ways they tell stories, you know, like, there's not a great difference between the way my mom talks about something painful that involves my brother, um, from the ways that I write 
you know, she has a different way of, of, uh, looking sideways at it, you know, whereas I have, I have my own way of looking sideways at, at it, you know, and, and I think in some ways there's something, you know, it's happening simultaneously, right? Like there's something much purer about the way my mother tells, um, of something, the way that, uh, that she uses language to tell a story or my father, uh, uses language to tell a story, um, that, that, uh, it's, it's about care, right? It's about caring for the self. It's about, uh, touching one another, even in a small space. So it's not even, it doesn't even have to be across a great distance. Like, you know, we do talk a lot on the phone when we're not together, but even across a room, like how different is that language? of sitting among people you love and who've seen you at your worst and seen you, you know, who, who basically had to feed you at times, you know, or, or who you still return to with your, with your greatest pains to sit and tell a story and to watch the ways we're kind of holding one another. Um, and then at the same time, I also feel like I've been given a gift of poetry on another side that my parents haven't had and that I've been told I am good because of that poetry, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to know that, that my parents are, uh, like my mother was never told that she was good in that way. And my father, especially with his difficulty reading was never told he was good in that way. And, and so it's such an interesting chasm, right? That you know, and, and yes, yeah, some of it is like, you know, age and opportunity and, you know, what our parents went through for us. But it's such an interesting thing that I have the, I have the luck to, for someone to tell me like, Hey, you are good. Or I, or you are great. Or you are like all of these words for something that I do, um, that my parents would never have the time to make a an art or craft out of it. It simply is their practice of love and care. And sometimes just getting up in the morning and getting through the day, you know, like I've said this at times, but like my father wakes up in the morning and looks in the mirror and he says, you know, body, have I been good to you? Mm. Like he, you know, body, have I been good to you? Well then let's, you know, then let's you and I get through this day. And Mm. that, that is poetry. That is a story. That's a small story right there that he's, uh, you know, he's telling. And so, yeah, it's just, you know, and I don't know if it's that, that I'm at that age, right? Like I'm 42 right now, but those are the questions I'm really asking about what it means to tell a story, what it means to, to be a poet and, and what, what am I doing in terms of, of returning, uh, what my parents gave me and I have, uh, you know, arrived at, what am I doing to, uh, to move that out of me and on to, to some other place? Well, if we were to take this moment that your father repeats every morning in the, in the mirror, that's both a mini story and a, and a mini poem. I was hoping we could talk about the talk you gave at Tin House one summer about repetition that I really loved. And you integrated questions of repetition and poetry with Steph Curry's impossible to defend yet often repeated crossover dribble with a song 
that I suspect was in Mojave from one of your elders. And, mm-hmm. and you, you talked about how a repeated word is not really a repetition, not on the page where each iteration is placed differently next to different words, but also especially and particularly when spoken. Every time you say the word, it is sounded different in the body, in time, the light in the room has changed, everything has changed. And that made me think about a review of a memoir about Borges that I was reading last Sunday morning over breakfast in the New York Times book review. It's a book written by Jay Perini about when he was young and tasked to look after Borges while he was visiting Scotland in the early 1970s. And they're on a road trip, and Perini recites to Borges a poem he has written, a romantic poem he has written while they're in the car. And Borges says, I've written the same poem, this exact poem. And then he tells Perini to read his short story, Pierre Menard, about a man who rewrites Don Quixote word for word, believing he is writing it for the first time. And Perini in the book then says, quote, in doing so, he liberates the idea of originality from the prison house of romanticism. Every word is original in the mouth, in the fresh context of what is uttered, in its own time and space. So I was hoping maybe you could speak to orality or the oral tradition in relationship to the written word in light of this. I mean, I think about, I think about orality a lot. I think about, um, and I might've mentioned this in that conversation you're referencing. I mean, I tend to reference it a lot. Um, but thinking of Walter J. Ong and, um, he was a Jesuit priest, um, and some of his uh, critique of oc- ocular centrism and literacy, you know, that like we forget, like we forget literacy, it's a power construct. You know, we forget like who, um, who books were made for and, and what they were made to disseminate, which was often, um, you know, the texts, the texts of God, right? You know, like so women, you know, could pray and read out loud you know, to themselves, or so we could, you know, uh, keep these great knowledges, um, you know, uh, put them down into text, but, but also what that robs you of, of your, of your sensualities, right? So, I mean, I talk a lot about, about sensuality and, and not necessarily in a, like, um, synesthetic way, because again, I think synesthesia is assuming that we have, uh, a certain number of senses, versus a sensuality that really has no bounds. Like, you know, what does it mean that the skin can sense color or what does it, you know, like those things are almost beyond our imagination because we've been taught the five senses, you know, or, um, and so I think, I think about that in terms of, uh, you know, the fact that a lot of, a lot of the ways we think about story and, the book itself is, you know, text and font. Like that's what the poem is. Like my, you know, the 8.5 by 11 inch page, which really doesn't exist any other places, but in those, you know, moments of, 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 I guess, measuring and, um, marking as, okay, this is a poem. Like we do that with our students. This is the poem. And, and now it's ready possibly for a book or, um, but I think a lot about, you know, 
for example, like the eye, the eye was, the eye is made to like, to read difference, right? Like that's what it's supposed to do. Like who is you and who is me and who is them and who is, you know, and, and what do I need to be worried about? What is dangerous? What is same? What is like? Um, and so, you know, I think there's something about, uh, about orality and the idea of listening that makes the body present, that, that allows the body to be fully itself. And even if, you know, and I don't mean to imply that that's the only sensuality, right? Because I think there are ways of listening with the body that are not only the ear, you know, so I don't mean to decenter the eye and then of course, center the ear. Um, but yeah, I mean, that feels really important to me. And, and, and that, you know, thinking of so is my teacher Hubert or Machumich Mahakev is his name, and um, you know he sings songs like we're working on a 235 song songs like song cycle, which is mm. wild, right? That are meant to be you know, like you sing them all in a row. Wow! Uh, and and if you were to hear them, and that, and that was one of the songs I played. If you were to hear them, it would seem like he's saying the same thing again and again, except that he's not and and I hear that and I, I follow every texture and corner and lift and rise of, of the words that he's singing. And a lot of them are song words. So even that, there's, a, there's, there's music there and there's language within that music. And, um, and to me, that, that feels really important. And it feels so far beyond repetition, you know, like it feels... Um, it feels like something, uh, you know, very like, like just for example, I was talking about this. So I, I probably showed that Iverson clip too of Iverson talking about practice. You did. Yeah. And so I was thinking about, you know, like, uh, and, and using the Steph Curry clips of his, you know, crossover, um, like you can prepare for it. Right. And that's what repetition makes us believe that like, I'm ready for it. I already know something about it. I know a lot about it. And yet it arrives and, and it, you're still experiencing it again in a, you know, your mind, even it's like we, we were to track the mind and the way the mind fires, it would still refire. It wouldn't suddenly say like, Oh, I'm only going to light up halfway because I've already heard this or I've already seen this. Like it's still, you know, the same places in our brains fire as if it's like blooming again in us for the very first time. But even thinking about the Iverson clip where it's like, you know, he says, he says the word practice like over, you know, 29 times. Um, and you know, it seems a little bit funny, but like what's interesting about that is that, um, maybe he says it like 20, 22, 23 times. But but that day that Iverson was in there talking about practice and saying, I mean, we're talking about practice. Come on, man. You really, you know, I'm the franchise player and talking about practice is that he had lost his friend not long before that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so for him to be in that room, having just lost someone he loved and to, to use that word again and again, it was almost as if practice was a way of, of grieving like the use of that word practice, you know, and yeah, he kind of like catches himself and kind of laughs about it. But, but, but what is grief if not a repetition that is so, so much more beyond repetition? It, 
you don't, it doesn't stop. Right. It, it, and it's never the same, not from one moment to the next. And so I think a lot about that, uh, again, with, with orality, uh, and, and again, I, you know, I don't want to of course center like the ear because I think there's also a way that, that the body itself can, can speak, you know, um, that doesn't just have to be the mouth. Um, but yeah, and, and what that means of, of what we're missing, right? You know, like thinking that the eye is actually a kind of touch. So what does that, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean that we're in digital space? It's named after touch. It's named after the hands. Um, yeah, and I mean, I don't know that I necessarily answered that, but but for me, I actually want to repeat, you know, I'm, I'm using that word for clarity because it doesn't quite feel right, but I want to reorganize and reorganize and reorganize and reorganize, you know, like it's, that's, it's, if I can, if I can get to the place where things are so peeled back that it's an energy that like, that I am of that energy, but it also becomes me in some way, but it's also beyond me, you know, like the saying that like the only difference between a living body and, and a dead body uh, in terms of energy is it's the same energy. It's simply been reorganized. But but none of that energy is gone. It's just been reorganized into uh, to, to other phases of of what the human body once was. Well, some of what you said about books and the written word on the page in a very standardized format makes me think of the poet, who's also a classicist, Alice Oswald, who. I think she says that the poem on the page is more like a musical score. It isn't the music that um, it shouldn't be mistaken for the music of, of performing the poem, but she's also your repetition on uh, your lecture on your lecture on repetition also um, made me think of her because she's always deeply engaged with water and she believes the way our minds work and the way water works are in relationship to each other, the reflective and mimetic ways of water and the mind, but also that water is never about sameness and repetition, but similarities and correspondences, the way a green leaf reflected in a pail of water will look brown or gray or yellow, but still be somehow inseparable from the green leaf itself. And it also reminded me of your distrust of the word truth, where in one interview you say, truth is a way of being asleep. When something is true, we no longer are engaging with it. It is established. It has come to a standstill. So thinking about water versus truth and about correspondences versus sameness, I I joined your conversation with the visual artist Maria Hupfield where you led us through the empty herd museum to see her exhibit, which was, which was really great to be able to visit a museum and also have a guide, um, a conversation that was described. The, the text that accompanied this event said, join us for a conversation with visual artist Maria Hupfield and poet Natalie Diaz, as they reimagined our borderlands as fluid and return to the practice of migration as a natural relationship with language, story, land, water, and one another, 
we'll also explore how artists can move past representation towards liberation. So thinking of this event and, and thinking about truth and water and thinking of your line, I'm doing my best not to become a museum of myself, I wanted to bring us to the, the longest poem in post-colonial love poem, exhibits from the American Water Museum. And I was hoping you could talk about this poem and, and the questions that animate it. Yeah, th this is a poem that um, it feels like it's only, it, it's just kind of uh, dropped into the book. Like the book is just one small space that it has decided to, uh, to enter. And uh, it, it feels very much alive to me. Um, I feel like it's, uh, you know, maybe where, the way it exists in the book is, uh, um, it's, it's almost like a small door you can enter. But if you were to enter it fully, you would, you would leave the book and, and move, you know, beyond and go to this other place. And um, it's actually a, a really important research project for me right now because I am trying to realize it, to manifest it as a physical, um, an actual physical space with physical objects in it um, and thinking along those lines of migration um, uh, involving other artists in coming into that space and creating their relationship to uh, you know, what is the, the water museum? How, how do we relate to water? Um, you know, I think, uh, in terms of, you know, I actually just had this conversation not long ago with a, a group of students from, uh, a poet, Lamar Wilson and, um, Tacey Adsity that I was talking with their class and they were very interested in the idea of the museum and, and what the museum you know, what the museum is, what it has been in the past. Um, and, you know, thinking of it as uh, that it's always been uh, a center of knowledge, but a, a certain kind of, of knowledge, right? And it's a place of, of preservation. And so in some ways, like, in some ways, I'm really calling into question what preservation is, and what it is we are always trying to preserve. And that, um, what deteriorates and what goes back into the earth is not meant to be preserved. It, it, you know, that there's a way that we are of the earth and we are taken back into it and that that is a very natural condition in the same ways that migration is also a natural condition. Like you, you can track the path of many tribes across the country because of the trees that grow along those paths, many paths that they were forced to walk you know, that they were forced to travel and, and lost so many loved ones along the way. And yet, um, you know, every time they stopped, they were carrying with them parts of their home and seeds and shells and nuts and things and, and moving along. Um, you know, even, even the ways that our country is set up right now, if we, if we took a closer look and didn't look at state lines, what we would begin to see is that waterways are so extremely important to the, the ways that, that we have moved and gathered and the, the ways we disperse. Um, it's also one of the, one of the most dangerous weapons of war. And, um, you know, we're seeing it in quiet ways right now in the United States. I think we're, we're not actually realizing that this living body of water is 
under attack in a way that, um, you know, uh, like with humans, right, you die or you, or you scar, you heal. And even if that healing is imperfect or, and you're changed afterward, there's something about the scar that is also part of, of a, a newness, a new origin. Yet the body of water takes much longer to heal, right? Because it, it's, not, it's not necessarily worried about our human scale. Um, I'm thinking for me that museum became that place to to think very uh, texturally and and in small and slow ways about about water in a way that I don't know that I can I don't know that people will understand the relationship I have to my river. I know I t- I talk about it a lot, but I I also think because we have constructions like metaphor or constructions like magical realism you know, in some ways, that's what my story becomes. It becomes that thing. So it's like, well, what if, you know, people understand museum, they understand when something has disappeared, or that something is disappearing, if you can put it into a museum, there's like this, you know, very violent measurement of what has been or what is yet. Um, And so for me, that's, if any poem in that book is an obsession of mine, it's that it's that American Water Museum. And uh, in some ways, I think I, I fail at it as a poem because it's so much larger. Um, and so I was imagining, you know, uh, I was imagining uh, like I was reading a lot of placards on and museum walls, like some of the ways that they mark text and things with it and just imagining, you know, what are the things that are missing? Um, and then how do you, uh, you know, as an indigenous person, it's like they wanted to shellac your wound. And so that's what they, they do. And they hold you still. I mean, a lot of really incredible artists, Maria Hupfield among them are really, I think at the forefront of shifting what's happening in museums in the United States and in North America in general. Um, but yeah, so, so what happens then when you, and then and Maria's, uh, word is she she activates her exhibits, so like refuses to let them be there alone and uh, you know quiet. And so um, that was part of the work I did there with her was, you know, to move in it, to activate it, to to touch the things, you know. Um, yeah. Again, I don't know that that's necessarily like a very straightforward answer, but um, that poem is is the one that for me is very much still happening. Could, could we hear some of the exhibits? Yeah. And again, like just with this is like, I feel like desire is always missing from the museum. You know, like what, what emotions are allowed to happen in the museum. And I think, I think a lot about that. Um, and then just etymo- etymologically museum, like what it was originally intended to relate to the idea of a, a muse. Um, so exhibit two, three, four, five has a small note, the prayer of an elder Mojave woman shot in the head and throat by two rubber bullets as she sat in prayer before a tractor and a row of German shepherds barking against their leashes at the sight of yet another pipeline. The river is my sister. I am its daughter. It is my hands when I drink from it, my own eye when I am weeping, and my desire when I ache like a yucca bell in the night. The river says, 
open your mouth to me and I will make you more. Because even a river can be lonely. Even a river will die of thirst. I am both the river and its vessel. It maps me alluvium, a net of moon-colored fish. I've flashed through it like copper wire, a cottonwood root swelling with drink. I tremble every leaf to lime, every bean to gold, jingle the willow in the same song the river sings. I am it and its mud. I am the body kneeling at the river's edge, letting it drink from me. Exhibit 200. You cannot drink poetry. Exhibit 19. There is often trouble choosing which language for the headset. Makav. Hahavil inyep newich. Espanol. A beber y a tragar. Que el mundo se va a acabar. I am fluent in water. Water is fluent in my body. It spoke my body into existence. If a river spoke English, it might say, what begins in water will end without it. Or, I remember you. I cannot forget my own body. Exhibit 88 has a small note. The last love letter written to the last river it was the wish of the last river that the letter not be made public until 100 years after her death. You remember everything. Carve a waterline of my transgressions. And despite all I've done, you've suffered to return to me. You've fed the mesquite's thorns and the sweet of its glowing beans. You've pulled me under and released me clean. You made me new, something better than good. Like me, you are a fast body, a coppery current. I laid in your bed. I kept you for myself, except you are myself, and kept me instead. Exhibit 365. Photograph from a South American newspaper. U.S. headquartered companies bought the rights to water in other countries. These companies are strangers to the gods of those waters, were not formed from them, have never said gracias to those waters, never prayed to those waters, have never been cleansed by those waters. The U.S. headquartered companies announce with armed guards, you can't drink from this lake anymore. The natives gather rain instead, open their beautiful water-shaped mouths to the sky, catch it in curved peach-colored shells in halved gourds in their water-shaped hands. The companies say, read these documents. We bought the rain, too. We own the rain. Exhibit 210, The Credible Thirst Interview. When did you first enter the territory of thirst? How many days have you waited in the long line of thirst with your dirty jug? Are you able to love anyone, your mother, your son, your lover, in the midst of such hunger and this fire stretching out and lengthening your throat? How many bodies have you pressed into, not for desire, but for the saliva you sucked from their tongue? 
Have you leaned your head against the miles and miles of cyclone fence to steady the dizziness, to slow the breath and thud at your temples, the mirages and hallucinations? Have you ever considered your thirst as a weapon? Do you now consider yourself a soldier in the battle for something wet? Do you recall in how many instances you didn't care when it was someone else's thirst erupting? And now, who should fill your cup from their own jug? Exhibit 211. There are differing opinions about how kissing became criminal. Who hasn't drunk, hasn't begged at the well of a lover's mouth? Love has never been different from thirst, but now everything is different. All the cups are filled with dirt, even our mouths. And listening to Natalie Diaz read from exhibits from the American Water Museum from her collection, Postcolonial Love Poem. So, so one of my favorite parts of our first conversation is when I quoted you something from the poet Heriberto Yepes, a poet I wasn't very familiar with, but you know you knew so well that you were able to immediately pull something up to read by him in response, and also a poet you teach regularly in your classes. And, and I feel like something similar has happened since we talked, where we are again on a similar wavelength, and again, you are many steps ahead of me. Um, when we last spoke, I was about halfway through Christina Sharp's In the Wake, reading it as part of a preparation for an interview I'm doing this winter with another poet. And this book has been a transformative read for me where I suspect the ideas that are put forth in it are going to inform a lot of my questions going forward as an interviewer and also just inform a lot of the growth I'm going to do as a person. Um, And as I was finishing the book after our conversation, thinking about what we might focus on this time in our second conversation, Sharp's ideas about the wake became inextricably intertwined with your engagement with water and your engagement with questions of participation in America. Um, The wake being the track left on the water surface by a ship, particularly in this case, a slave ship, the wake as a disturbance caused by a body swimming or moved in water, the wake, a region of disturbed flow and Sharp's notion that thinking needs care and that thinking and care needs to stay in the wake. She says to be in the wake is to occupy and be occupied by the continuous and changing present of slavery's as yet unresolved unfolding. To be, quote-unquote, in the wake, to occupy that grammar, the infinitive, might provide another way of theorizing in, for, from, what Frank Wilderson refers to as staying in the hold of the ship. But then I discover a little later on that you are already in a deep engagement with In the Wake, that through the Center for Imagination in the Borderlands, you're inviting writers to participate in a durational study of the book with your students in a series called Migrating the Loop. And some of these writers include past Between the Covers guests, 
Yunsong Kim and Brandon Shimoda, and also one of my favorite poetry editors, Claire Schwartz from Jewish Jewish Currents. And also independently of this project, you've brought Kinesia Lubrin, whose most recent book is in direct conversation within the wake as well. So I was I was hoping we could dwell in this confluence between Christina Sharp and you for a bit. It, if you could talk to us about in the wake for you as a poet and a teacher and an indigenous person living in the United States. I guess I'm thinking, you know, where, where to begin. Um, I mean, I, I guess maybe the first place I, I can begin. Um, I, I mean, this book feels, you know, like a germinal text. Uh, it's, it's poetry in so many ways. Um, and something that I really admire about it is that I feel like it lets, it lets the ancestors in, uh, in, in, as like thinking alongside us also, like there's such a beautiful conversation happening even within the book, you know, like you're, you're touching and in touch with so many thinkers who, uh, who Christina has been in touch with or has been touched by or work shaped by in so many different ways. I guess maybe a good starting place would just be thinking about, about the weather, right? I mean, it's definitely something that, uh, um, I've been taught to think about, uh, you know, in different ways. And I want to make sure that I'm, uh, that I'm talking in a way that, uh, is acknowledging like, uh, conversions and diversions because you know the the black experience the black experience in diaspora the black indigenous experience is very different than the indigenous experience and yet they're in uh they're they're in deep deep conversation um and i think you know one of the ways that i engage with the idea of uh of the weather is um like for me, the weather lets me disallow context. And I, I feel like context is such a dangerous power structure in America. And we've been taught to think in the shape of context, right? We, well, uh, you know, well, I just need to know the context of that. And then I can jump into any experience. It's, it's a lot like empathy. Empathy is a context and very, you know, in many ways it's, um, it's, you know, empathy is one way I, uh, look at something based on the context of my life and, and how, um, you know, like where the pressure points of that are. Um, and so, you know, there's a way that we've always talked about the weather, uh, moving like the weather or, or, you know, a lot of our stories, uh, we become weather, uh, in Mojave stories so that we, uh, you know, as we're moving into battle or so that we can hide or so that we can move and transform and, and those have also become the ways that, that we have come to be in this nation, right, in this country. And, you know, one of the many ways that she treats the weather is, again, I relate to it in that way, that it is a condition. It's not something that comes and goes, but it is the, the very condition by which we move and act. Um, I think that one of the things that I see in the book is is this incredible generosity of, of the small, intimate moments that I would call touches, right? Even, 
even how she slows us down to think about hold itself, you know, hold, be hold, to be, to be held, what that means. Um, and it, it really has shaped a lot of the ways that I, I think, um, one of those generosities I also believe is for me, the, one of the ways I enter it is that there's been a very, very long, a long bifurcation of ocean belonging to blackness and land belonging to nativeness. Mm. And I feel like what Christina's text, what, what in the wake has offered all of us is this place to, to return to of, of, um, of relationality. I mean, I really do feel like it's a very indigenous text. It's, it's about, um, it's about relationality. It's about the fact that, that in some ways we will always be, um, the things that have happened to us and who we have been and who we have been, uh, who we have come from. And, and yet we are also living. And what does that mean about the ways we learn to, to frame memory, the ways we learn to enact memory, like a kind of, again, that kind of timelessness. Um, And it it just, I guess for me, it feels like a, uh, it feels like I sat down and someone talked with me about the ways they've decided to live. Um, And it feels like something I might get from, from my teacher. Hubert, you know, who's in his nineties, you know, and is, and, and it's a way that's, uh, it, it's also a way that I feel like disallows a lot of Western and, and in particular, uh, South and North American, um, points of engagement. Like there are certain places they would like us to engage with what has happened to us, you know, and I say us very broadly in history. It's like, we'll engage you here because we have decided this is what has happened, you know, and because this is now a point of engagement, we expect it to stay in this small area. But, but just the, the, the disallowal, even I think of a particular timeline, Mm. like to say that, uh, you know, and that, I guess that's what my elders mean in some ways is say like, it's, it's not the wound, it's the scar, you know, the wound, the wound heals, but the scar is what reminds you. The scar is what you carry, and it, it's what tells you the story again and again and again. Um, and so I, I guess I think a little bit about it in that way. I, one of the things that I, I'm really interested in and hopeful with the text and offering it to my students is that um, I like this text for me because I think, one, it's like one of the few texts that I think everybody should read. Um, but bringing in Kinesia, um, Brandon Shimoda, um, uh, we brought in, like you said, in song, we brought in, uh, Victoria, uh, Adukwe Bully from, uh, London, who's based in London now, parents are from Accra. Uh, Claire will be our final one. Um, uh, Asiya Wadud also was part of it, but just, uh, for them to see the, the many ways that we are. Uh, we are kin to one another, like we are relational and that we don't have to be the same, right? Like there are some experiences that are, are too big 
they're, they're too big to, uh, like they're too big, I think, to imagine a language for, right? Which is, I think, one of the real beauties of the text is how many voices are in that book. You know, that it in some ways is a chorus that she has built. Um, and really, who, who else could carry it but a chorus? You know, like, the, and this kind of goes back in some ways to the idea of migration. Like, you need, you need that chorus. In that. And I, I'm thinking back, and I don't want to, like, I don't want to ruin anything by, like, tying it to a Western tradition. But I don't mean the Western tradition of chorus. But there's a reason why... Mojave funerals are four nights long and they were full of singing because we had to sing that person to the next place and it took that long and that the morning was and and, and I mean the morning like you know that it was all day and all night you know that it it took that many of my people to hold what that loss was to hold what that person had been through and also what we had been through. Uh, there's a word in Mojave that means, um, and it's something that you, it's a powerful word because only older people do it, but it's a word that, that means you can cry for your entire life. Um, and, and, and I, I don't feel like the book is only situated of course in the wound, but I think what that book feels like to me is it's an invitation to find that chorus, to find that group of voices that, that you need to hold, uh, but not just to hold, to carry, right? Like to, to carry it. Cause it's one thing to hold. And that's what we've been taught. You hold this wound and then we're also going to hold you still with this wound. But there's a way that, that, you know, even like that, that very like poetic playfulness on, on to hold, to behold, to, you know, to be beholden. Um, again, it's a, it's a generosity that I couldn't imagine actually, uh, um, teaching that book much less offering it without its own chorus. And so that's one of the ways that I try to, to deliver it to my students and to show them, you know, that, that there are some things that are that are so big and so important that it's it's going to take the collective to do it and you know and yes Christina I can't imagine the the, the I can't imagine the toll that book must have taken mm. on her um, I also am assuming it also brought a certain kind of of you know ecstatic and and, uh, you know, pleasure and joy in, in certain ways. But there's a lot that it that she carried for many people in that book. Um, I, I want to read a paragraph from it that feels connected to a piece you just did for Penn about the election, about the question of voting or not voting, and about the importance of impossibility that your piece was called A Practice of Momentum. This is from... In the wake, Joy James and Joao Costa Vargas ask in Refusing Blackness is Victimization, Trayvon Martin and the Black Cyborgs, quote, what happens when instead of becoming enraged and shocked 
every time a black person is killed in the United States. We recognize black death as a predictable and constitutive aspect of this democracy. What would happen then if instead of demanding justice, we recognize, or at least consider, that the very notion of justice produces and requires black exclusion and death as normative, unquote. Sharp continues by saying, the ongoing state-sanctioned legal and extra-legal murders of black people are normative and for this so-called democracy necessary. It is the ground we walk on. And that it is the ground lays out that, and perhaps how, we might begin to live in relation to this requirement for our death. What kinds of possibilities for rupture might be opened up? What happens when we proceed as if we know this, anti-blackness to be the ground on which we stand, the ground from which we attempt to speak, for instance, an I or a we who know, an I or a we who care. And I just want to repeat what I, what I quoted earlier because it also feels vital to this. To be in the wake is to occupy and be occupied by the continuous and changing present of slavery's as yet unresolved unfolding. To be quote-unquote in the wake, to occupy that grammar, the infinitive, might provide another way of theorizing in for from what Frank Wilderson refers to as staying in the hold. So when I think of Frank Wilderson, I realize my interest and curiosity about Afro-pessimism at this point far outstrips my knowledge of it. So what I might say now might be an un- might be a misunderstanding or might be naive in some sense. But while this framing of Christina's may be pessimistic with regards to America and the promises it puts forth, and I think that's what the pessimism is referring to, it seems to be a position full of possibility, imaginative and otherwise, this this notion of staying in the wake, accepting that anti-blackness, as she puts it, is the total climate. And I'd add to that the near universal eraser of indigeneity as part of that total climate. But much like your line in your essay, A Practice of Momentum, where you say, we are the ancestors of what is yet impossible of America. This doesn't feel pessimistic to me. You, you, you say explicitly you're not invested in the success of America, and yet that essay feels like it is an opening and maybe that's just a reiteration of what you've just said, but I, I wondered if hearing Christina's words prompts any any um, any further thought. I mean, I'm interested in in pessimism. Again, I'm thinking, of course, is is the way that she speaks of weather, which is a lot the way that my my ancestors and my teachers have talked about the weather. You know, like we don't say like under the weather. It's like oh, you're in the weather. You know, and it it could even mean that you're being mopey or you're in a bad mood, but it has to do with like the condition of you. Um, we also talk a lot about uh, the weather being beyond something like a storm. You know, like sometimes the weather is just the way the sky looks and a feeling that they have of something that might be coming. Um, 
that you you know that anyone else might not notice but like we have a way of saying like uh the, the sky is in a way that something is coming and it doesn't mean storm or clouds but it, it's just like a, a kind of strangeness and i've always tried to like watch them and and mark it so that i might be able to read the sky that way but i realize it's not it's not something it's not something that uh uh it's not like visible with the eye it's something within them you know but I mean, I guess what what I'm so intrigued by with the idea of pessimism and optimism, but pessimism in general is that it's about the condition, right? Like pessimism is, it's not even an intellectualism. And I was talking to my partner about this today because I was like, we pretend emotions are happening somewhere out in the air around us, but it, it, it it's like... Like I, I've been thinking a lot, right? I've been thinking a lot about skin, my skin, and because you know touch. But what is my body like? That when I'm when I'm anxious, when I'm sad, like the air, the air can like hurt me. Like there's a physical reaction I have to the air that is actually my emotion. You know, like when I'm upset about something, or when I'm like angry, or even like like kind of filled with joy, it's it's my body, but somehow we've tried to like separate these things. Um, and so with like, for example, with pessimism, we pretend it's, it's a, our intellectualism, right? It's the way that we are approaching something intellectually when, when it's actually, it's actually the, it's the conditions in which we are living. So it is, it is, pessimism is made up of action. It's when, when a condition has like, it's it's a literal like deterioration like like I think if we go back to the etymology that's something that it's it's linked to so you know pessimism is not like uh, and and then again like you know Frank Wilderson has a much more complex you know relationship to this but but I'm just kind of uh, rather than me trying to uh, pretend I can hold Afro pessimism in my head. Um, or much less, you know, I'm in a position to speak to it. I, I guess I just kind of want to approach it from this, from this space is that it, we are not the pessimists. The pessimism is the state of this country, is that this country is, exists in such a way. Uh, and, and while it's diminishing certain bodies, it is also its own deterioration you cannot maintain like this, this country was not meant to main, to be maintained, right? Like this is why we go through all these cycles. Like democracy was someone's, someone's idea. And I mean, I think, I think the, the part that feels like pessimism to me is, is democracy itself is right now we're watching it deteriorate, you know, and, and not that I've ever held it up as an ideal, like I've been taught to, you know, I've been taught that it is, uh, we've all been taught, right? Like it, it's, it's inculcate, it's inculcated into, you know, we learn like the vote itself, I guess I'll just say like, you know, I've never been much of a voter. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like democracy has put us in certain states of compromise that mean we have to look away from what, what we've once been or what we could be of 
joy or love or or our own imaginations because we we believe everything has to go through through democracy you know um and i think you know i think there's something about there's something about pessimism to me that is um yeah it's i guess it's i guess to think about being pessimistic, I don't know that I am. I think I just live in a a country of pessimism, right? I live in a country that was built on the deterioration of others in a way that could only bring about its own deterioration. You know, I want to I want to look up the word because I, I think it's actually linked to the idea of the ground as well. Oh wow! Which, which I think is um, I might be wrong, but I'll have to go back and look a little bit later, but I, I think it's, I think, you know, and maybe, maybe I'm just dragging it there because of deterioration, but I do think it's, it's linked to the actual literal ground, which is also interesting to imagine something, you know, being returned to that, like crumbling to it. And then what that would mean. What you're saying here now about America and what Christina said about um, staying within the wake and attempting to speak an I or a we, who know and care feels like it, it brings me back to Whitman and the Epis quote, because Whitman really feels like a perfect window into this America you describe. And then the gap between the aspirational we that is lauded for its seeming inclusiveness and, and the embodied lived life of the person on the ground who supported the war against Mexico, who cared more about preserving indigenous place names, but not, actual indigenous people and who was for denying the vote to black people. Um, the celebrated we of, of Whitman feels to me, at least connected to the we and, and we, the people of the constitution, which feels like it denies the wake also. And I feel like you make a nod to this in in a practice of momentum when you bring up the Supreme court, case the supreme court in in uh 1884 making sure that the 14th amendment which defines what a citizen is as someone born in the united states didn't actually include native americans yeah and and i'm moving backward here because i think I guess uh, as we're kind of building this landscape, right, of thinking about uh, about democracy um, and thinking about the idea of staying uh, in the wake, thinking about uh, I, we, not pessimism. Um, I think something that I think about with the idea of the the we or the I, we. Um, so just for example, with my language work, uh, I never say I at home. It's always we. Um, one, because I'm, I work with elders and I'm not, and I'm young. And so there's a way that I should never be the center there. You know, even if I'm, even if they're teaching me something, it's the energy of their teaching that is important, right? That, it's like the same reason why we don't say please and thank you. Um, we don't say thank you because it's not about me. It's about that forward energy of, of you 
view doing or giving or offering. But I mean, it, it brings me back to, to thinking about empathy. And like, we talked a little bit about, like you had asked me about, um, about something I'd said. And I, I was, I kind of like was blanking out that day every day, really. My brain is, uh, this is, I've been working on a really big grant for the last few months. So it's kind of fried my brain, but, um, I mean, I guess something I'm thinking about is, so this is a concept that's not present in a lot of cultures, but because you were asking about like the idea of hunters and empathy, right. And we had been talking about that. And I, uh, it was something I was writing about a few years ago when I was in Princeton. Um, and there's a poet named Nomi Stone who, um, she and I had had several conversations about this. She had studied Arabic and had done some work. Uh, and we had been in a, some Middle Eastern countries, but we were talking about, we were talking about the way soldiers trained and, um, even that like when they build these small villages, we actually have one out here in Tucson. Um, and, um, and just the ways that like, uh, soldiers are taught to quote empathize, you know? So it's like how we want to teach you how to think like they think and to, uh, you know, so you, understand you know and and things like uh, even like giving the kids candy you know that's very much related um but we were talking about uh hunters and how they uh there are so many ways that they imagine themselves empathizing or or thinking like right um um thinking like their prey in order for them to uh, to hunt them but but both of those things are very different from uh one of the ways that so so again so empathy the idea that you can you can understand how someone is feeling you can put yourself in the shoes of someone to imagine how they might feel but again that's like it's such a a very western perspective because there there are indigenous hunters and there are there are people in my own culture and family who can who can become an other thing and it's not, it's a, it's a, it's an actual happening, right? So there are, there are indigenous hunters who do believe that they can become the animal that they are hunting so that they are that for a moment and then they return to themselves and that's a that's a, it's a much different relationship than empathy, and it's a much more real uh, happening in that it's it also it also creates the relationship by which you you have respect for something. So so you understand what it means when a life is gone, even if it's the life that you'll then feed yourself from, you know? Um, and so, um, you know, so I, I think some of this thinking about democracy, because I think democracy is very much built on this, this very false idea of empathy, right? It, It, even the idea that says that we can say who deserves to be treated like a citizen, 
you know, and who it, who doesn't and who who isn't a citizen. And then at which point do we uh, um, how much suffering must they suffer or how much discomfort must I experience in order for me to be brought to a place of empathy for that for that non-citizen? You know, and, and so it, it all I don't know. I'm I'm making a very messy kind of constellation of this, but I guess just for me, it, I almost don't know how to think about it. I, I know that I have to. Um, I know there are people who, again, have been doing this work. Um, but I, I, when I say that I'm not invested in the success of America, in, in one respect, I do know what I mean. In another respect, I know I am not prepared for that either. Right. You know, like what, what, and this is why I, th- I think I'm kind of leaning or, or returning to, or, or, uh, you know, dragging my hand through the idea of empathy because, um, because I don't, I just, I don't know what I, if I have what it takes to be as uncomfortable or discomforted as I would need to be in order for certain kinds of change to happen, you know, and I, I don't know that uh, the improvisational, I don't know that me improvising within these systems is, um, it, it one, it, it, I, I see it shaping me in ways that I compromise or that I, uh, you know, toe that line. And I guess that's why I'm trying to, to differentiate between what is participation and what is complicity. Because I think uh, if I am able to separate those, I, I definitely know I transgress in you know, both areas. Well, maybe to go oblique to this question, I, I did want to ask you about your notion of indigeneity, um, both because of some things you said in the last conversation and also um, even when, in this conversation when you, you mentioned Christina's book as an indigenous text and then talk about the ways in which land has been associated with indigenous people and, and water with uh, the black experience. Um, you, you suggested in the last conversation that indigeneity does not have to do to, does not have to do or not only have to do with land also that it isn't reserved for natives and and you referred in in passing, I think, to a diasporic indigeneity or something to that effect. And, and you've also said that indigeneity is the key to constellating between us. And that all made me that that was all really intriguing to me. And I wanted to know so much more, be, just because of my own assumptions. And and I remember listening a couple of years ago to uh, a, an indigenous-run show on the same radio station where between the covers gets aired here in Portland. And I don't remember who the host and the guests were, but the guests came on the show. Um, it was two indigenous people speaking and he was wondering how long it took generationally for an inhabitant of a land to become native to the land. And I remember immediately dismissing this notion out of hand as I was driving, thinking that, no amount of time would make a Han Chinese settler indigenous to Tibet or my family's descendants indigenous to Colorado or Oregon. 
but it sounds like you have a much more complicated and nuanced notion, unsurprisingly. And uh, I was hoping you could talk to us about indigeneity in general, and then also in relationship to the land and this idea of constellating uh, between us as a key moving forward. I mean, I understand the importance of recognizing uh, the peoples who've come from these particular lands, you know, like I, I think very, I think very, um, very physically about that. Like, for example, I am made from the clay along the Colorado river. Like I recognize that water and that water recognizes me, you know, like I, I feel like that is a, a very, it's a real relationship. It's not it's not metaphorical. It's not, you know, magical realism. It's, it's something beyond that. It's like, um, you know, it's this pre-verbal space, right? Like, uh, the language has trapped us. Like the English language is, is not large enough. It's not old enough to hold some of those, those ways of being. Um, and I mean, I think, I think of indigeneity so, so there's that, right? And I think that is something that has to be recognized and respected. And, and yet, I think indigeneity is also one's relationship with the place that they are, with, with where they are, with how they arrive. Again, like this very important um, like ritual, this very important process, this very important practice of arriving and receiving. You know, like I when someone comes into my home, I, I want to receive them in a certain way. I want them to know that, that I, I'm glad that they have arrived. I want them to be fed. I want them to feel comfortable. I want them to rest. I want, and at the same time, it's reciprocal. They also have a practice of arriving, you know, and, and that, I think for me, that reciprocal relationship is, uh, an important aspect of, indigeneity um i do think water recognizes us you know um i think a lot about uh i've been in a lot of conversations lately about like the pacific and the atlantic you know um and and what those waters have come to represent and who those waters have carried or held um i'm thinking a lot about uh you know for example like we uh, we think of we think of migration. We think of that right, mostly being on land, and it's the majority of it has happened on water. You know, and like what the water carries, what the water has shaped of us. Um, I think, um, you know, and and I mean it. It's controversial because we don't have the language for it yet, right? Like it, it's such a a space between what is native or indigenous, what is uh, blackness or black blackness and diaspora, what is black indigenous, what is indigenous blackness. Like there, there's a, a conversation and, and some people are having it, but largely we don't have that language outside. Whereas in my community, we have many black indigenous people. You know, um, I mean, I have a black and indigenous household. My, my wife is, is black and, and it, it is, a. it's, a. again, it's like, 
it's an allness, which doesn't have to mean sameness. And I think that is something that's really difficult to, to hold in the English language because the English language has done such a good job of creating time, times that, and, and, and time that we are beholden to. And, you know, what do those time markers mean? Who do those time markers acknowledge? Even thinking about, you know, that this country is largely built of migration, the United States, right? It's, and yet, what does that mean for me as an indigenous person who is also, uh, you know, Mexican and Spanish? Like, what does that mean for me when migration was actually a part of my, my culture as well? You know, like the, the ways that we moved and, and, and we moved the way the land taught us to move. We moved the way the river taught us to move. You know, when the floods came, we moved. When, you know, when animals moved, we moved. Um, and so it, I think some of it is just, and, and I think this for me is why uh, engaging a text like In the Wake and engaging it among a group of, of, of thinkers from many different places um, and many different languages feels essential because I'm invested in what that language needs to be. I'm invested in it in a very, uh, very intimate way in my own household. You know, I'm invested in it among my friends. Um, you know, and I think it's a conversation that for me began, you know, a long time ago, like you know, on my reservation in my community, because we have a lot of, um, of uh, Mojaves who are also black or black people who are also Mojaves. Um, who are, you know, we're family, like it's not, um, if you're Mojave, you're Mojave, right? And so beginning to kind of see the way these things are situated and, and also the necessity for, I think, the conversation to happen in relationship to what is democracy, what is, uh, what is any of our futures, you know, like beginning to think about even things like freedom, mm. you know, like, uh, we say freedom as if it means the same thing to everybody. And I, you know, it definitely does not, you know, but where do you begin with that conversation? You know, and then in indigenous area, in, in indigenous conversations, there are, there are words that are incredibly fraught, you know, like, you know, talking about sovereignty with the younger native peoples is very difficult, you know? So it, it, I guess it's all a matter of language. This is why I think in some ways, um, you know, po the, why poetry has a certain kind of power, but I think it's also why, um, and back to the, the beginning of this question, why In the Wake has felt so important, um, you know, there's a lexicon there that I think is a very generous lexicon, um, and to watch, um, you know, at least on the, in the pages of the book, to, to watch how that lexicon was shaped and all of the touching that happened across other texts to build that, that lexicon, um, you know, I think is, it's, it's pretty incredible. And it feels like entering a conversation that's been happening for a long time and that will continue to happen. Well, I wanted to end with a, a question about time. Um, in your essay, A Practice of Momentum, you say, my existence requires a dislocation from traditional markers of time and score. A clock, the year 1492, the year of my birth, 
a scab and its scar any election year. Before the beginning and always becoming, I say to remind myself I am capacious of origin, of rising at any moment and from any descent, including the descent of a country. As a native in America, I must disallow being counted down on a nation clock of beginnings. American time zones are designed to begin after my people. And in, in post-colonial love poem, we get a lot of evocations of time on a non-human scale. Flowers that take 20 years to bloom, 100-year floods, deserts that used to be oceans. But you also had this interesting conversation on, on the Thresholds podcast about time in your own body, where you described your lifelong struggle with anxiety using the language of time to describe it. The anxiety as the knowing of the boundaries of time down to tiny increments, down to a second of time. And I wondered when I heard that if if your evoking of this longer non-human time was a way to counterbalance the second-by-second second time of the anxiety of your own body. But also just was wondering more generally if, if you could speak about the dislocation of yourself from time in relationship to this almost microscopic awareness of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's the, that's the pain of time, I think, right. That's the torture of it is that, uh, you know, I don't know what my anxiety would be like without the pressure of, of, of success in relationship to time, right. Our successes are measured in time. Um, in ways I think that are uh, counter to the way any life, you know, any life wants to live. Um, you know, I've been talking, we talked a little bit last time about uh, watching plants bloom and that some are late and some bloom on their own time. And, you know, and from my very human time measured eye, I would, give up on them like oh that one didn't make it and then sure enough two weeks later it, it's on its own time um i think there's a way that we talk about time is we like saying being out of time like that you want to be out of time because because these things are still happening you know um it, it, like just for example i was driving and uh, we, we live in a very flat valley and so light shifts and you see different parts of the valley depending on where the light is, depending on how clouds are. And so we have um, a Meach, which is the rock who cried. I talk about that a lot. It's one of my favorite places at home. But it's the rock who cried when he found out that the creator had died. And so when the creator died, it, uh, it, it happened upriver and so uh, the river carried it down and the rock found found out that way. And so the rock cried and it's still a deep red purple color because when it cried, it got wet and that's what changed its color. And so when we say of the image, it's like the rock who cried, well, it, that's still happening. That mourning is still happening even there in the stone, you know? And so thinking about that, in 
in relationship to time. And then that alongside the ways that we have been taught when we say like, Sumach, Ahot, you know, or I'll always say like dream well or dream good. And, and it, it doesn't mean like, you know, again, like, I hope you sleep all right, or I hope you don't have nightmares, but it just means that like, that where we arrive is it's already there and we will arrive to it. Like it's been dreamed for us. And so there's something about time that already doesn't work. Like something about the typical, you know, way that we clock a year or an hour because I, I will arrive there and it will be right on time. Even if I wanted to arrive there soon, or even if I never could have imagined arriving there. Mm. I mean, what else could I, what else could it be that I am here and who I am having come from where I've come from, you know, like what was different about where my brother is now and where I am now, except that I was dreamed here in a way that he was dreamed somewhere else, you know? And so I I think about that and, and it doesn't feel unrelated to, again, like anxiety, which is why for me, like the poem uh, from the desire field, the necessity to say, like, I, I need to reorganize this because anxiety is such a measure of time. It, it's it's my inability to to make it like through through the shortest increment so much that like you would count seconds, you know, or that I'll sit in the clock and be like, OK, a minute has passed. Like, you know, and like the same way that my father wakes up in the morning and it's like, body, have I been good to you? Like I can catch myself through a day being like it's like back to sports. I'm like, you can like, come on, you can do this. Like you can get through like, and it's a sh- the shortest increment of time. But what would happen if I could treat it not as that? Like, what if I, what if I could say, what if my anxiety is a river? How might I need to move then? Or what might I let of it move through me in a way that I wasn't trying to always hold it? You know, and I, I think there's also something about um, there's something about time and the idea of of endurance that we've been taught. And that's something I, I feel very much. Um, I just feel like I'm a lot more willing to break in ways that I always thought I should or couldn't, especially as an athlete, you know, like you go until you go until you can't go and then suddenly your body finds a way for you to keep going. But that was all I knew and it was also the thing that got me through where I grew up and how I grew up. And I tried to pull that into the rest of my life and it didn't work. Like because you you can only take so much and and why and you know and this is kind of related to the idea of saying like we're capable of many origins and we have to be. So so why not let myself break if I am breaking so that then I can, I'll, I'll just see what the next origin is. And it's, it's not easy because then you have things like my first thought is always like, well, I always have so much on the line. Like I'm, I always have so many things that I'm trying to make that might crumble. Like, well, well, who would I, I be letting down if that happened or what would I be, you know? Um, but yeah, I think those are all kind of measures of time. And again, that's in some ways why I feel like I'm at I'm at poetry because I do think it operates far outside of time, even though we do our best to measure it, right? Like we measure it, who's successful, who's not, who's emerging, who's not. 
you know, um, the, the length of, a, you know, all, we have all these ways to measure it, but, but where it truly exists, where it, where it exists is not like once it happens, it's always happening. You know, if, if we were to go out with a, a final poem, I was hoping you'd be willing to read snake light. Could you introduce it to us? Um, before you read it, uh, maybe in the context of how you see the light poems, blood light, skin light, ink light, snake light? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, again, light is such a, light is one of my lexicons, just having grown up in the desert. Um, I also, I also felt like the need, uh, I think of light as a kind of touch. And so there are ways that like, you know, in the, in the first poem, Blood Light, it, it's a poem that has a lot of violence and intimate violence in it. And I wanted the light to also be there touching those who were uh, in pain in the poem, in that particular poem. And it, that felt really important to me. Um, and so light is paired with things that might normally, um, that might normally hit your eye as dark or might normally be projected as having a kind of darkness to them. You know, skin light, um, the, the, the game itself was a brutal game. It, it had certain rituals about like moving into the underworld and uh, being in conversation with some of the gods from the underworld. Um, you know, ink light again, uh, thinking about uh, ink being of the body and, um, and thinking about, uh, you know, that, uh, ink light is the night I met my, my partner, my now wife. Um, and, you know, so for me pairing these poems with light, it, it felt like a way that I could, uh, I mean, it was almost like, I guess, a of what felt like a physical riddling of light, you know, like it's already shot through with light, but these are the places I wanted to really like mark in that way. Um, Snake light. I can read a text in anything. To read a body is to break that body a little. When my desert reads a life out loud, it takes the body down, back to caliche and clay, one symbol at a time. The blue milk of an eye sipped empty, a wasted tongue rewinding to its vacant throat, each vertebra unlocked and dragged beneath the sand. The body after itself, the afterbody, undressed to its banquet for yellow jackets and butterflies. Yes, butterflies nourish on the nectar and the rack, ascending, descending against the snake's broken body in adoration. The devotional fervor work of revision. Let's say it's all text. The animal, the dune, the wind, and the cottonwood, and the body. Everything book, a form bound together. This is also book, the skeleton of a rattlesnake sheathed tightly in its unopened flesh, apex of spine and spur, the wet black curves of unlit bones, dark parentheses, letters flexed across a mica-lit gully, a line. What is a page if not a lingering, an opaque waiting to be marked and written. Even the rattlesnake is legible through the muscled strike of its body, a sentence or a spell, a taut rope of emotion, 
serpentine signal against the surface of the eye's moon-stroked desert floor. In the woods with my love, there was a snakeskin dangling from the tree bark, sleeve of gold honeycombed scaled with light. I touched it softly, the way I touch a line while reading, trembling with the body of the snake before it left itself, like leaving one word for the next, becoming and possible. I gave the skin to my love and said, now I am a story. Like the snake, I am my own future. Lines are shed like snakeskin, rubbed against the rough white page released, not remembered or unremembered, the body leaving itself for itself. Each new line its own body, made possible by the first body, and here now entering the rooms of our eye and ear. The new body is how the rattlesnake knows itself, not as less body, but as whole body. You should never kill a rattlesnake. A rattlesnake is also human. Americans worship their obsessions in violent ways. They write them down. Americans celebrate the rattlesnake in rattlesnake rodeos, round them up, kill them, sell them, cash prizes for the heaviest and longest rattlesnake, more cash for the most dead rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes skin to their tails, torsos rewritten as italic slope, meat darkening and arched among the almost white prairie grasses. The rattlesnake read and interpreted, rendered a classic American character in a classic American font. In my Mojave language, when you desire the rattlesnake, you call out its first name, Iquir. You can't know the rattlesnake's power if you've never felt its first name stretch and strike in your mouth like making lightning, unfolding fangs from the soft palate of your jaw, delivering all of it to a body you want to pull inside you, her mouth, her throat in your mouth and throat, her shoulders and ribcage. You would fold her in half if you could. Hips, such a long thigh, thigh, calves, ankles, and afterward you are changed, bewildered, slow. In the beginning, the letter N was the image of a snake. Phoenician scribes held it in their hands, gave it. They deepened the body's curve and chopped off the snake's head, which didn't change the body's song. When I write my name, I hold the cool, scaled body of the snake. Set it writhing on the page. In, it sings. Beneath the patterns burnishing the rattlesnake's back, its pale belly glows. Cage, a place of hunger. Some days the inn is silent without its head. It's the hun of the scribe's sword I hear written in my ear. I have another name. I have a rattlesnake name. When you say my name, you mean the rattlesnake is sitting there, watching, waiting for her. I am also her. My elder says you are like that rattlesnake. She is quiet, quiet, then she strikes, and it's too late. You can rewrite, but not unwrite. The rattlesnake, I, are ampersand, a coil almost. 
We ligature. When a snake swallows its prey, a row of inner teeth help walk the jaw over the prey's body, walking like reading, walking over a word with the teeth of our mind. To write is to be eaten, to read, to be full. The rattlesnake moves like sepia ink. The white muscle of the page is what makes these dark ribs walk. The dimmed bone line is still. Somewhere deep, the rattle of energy, the hibernaculum. I watched a rattlesnake swim across the Colorado River, down near the devil's elbow, where the sea monster, whose name I cannot tell you, turned the mountain to sand, created a 90-degree bend in the course of the blue-green water. I dream of snakes who want to speak to me. I cover my ears. I run. I jumped in the bed of a red pickup truck. The snake stood up on its tail, human. It spoke with its black tongue like a flick of black hair in the wind. It spoke to me with that tongue, making all those black knots in the air. The alphabet of my love's hand in the dark, a gesture I can read, a desire text. She enters me. I am her scriptorium. My tío Facundo was from Zacatecas and skinned a rattlesnake in our backyard, fried it in el disco. He gave me the rattle tied on a cord I wore around my neck until my Mojave great-grandmother saw it, said, take it off. I asked, why? She said, would you wear my foot around your neck? I said, you don't have feet. She said, take it off. She said, we don't eat snakes. They are our sisters. She said, I gave you my name, I called you, and I watched her tongue like a whip of ink write my name in the air. You've been listening to Natalie Diaz read Snake Light from Postcolonial Love Poem. I am singing a song that can only be born after losing a country, the epigraph that opens the book by Joy Harjo, and also later the quote, by Hortense Spillers. My country needs me, and if I were not here, I would have to be invented. Feel connected to the afterbody of the snake in that poem to me and, and to the lines in your essay. I do believe that I am the momentum of my ancestors having arrived, arrived and still in motion, still toward. I also believe that where you and I ever meet is in the space of what might happen next, not a location but what we do there and how we do it, a practice of our relations, and we must relate better. My ancestors will be there too. They always are, not in the past, but in what lies ahead, and not just for me, but for all of us. I guess on that note, I, I, on that note, I wanted to just thank you for being on the show again, Natalie, and put forth my hope that our almost five hours of talking together now have been part of a practice of relations of one afterbody with another in the wake. Thanks for being on the show again. Yeah. Gracias, David. I really appreciate all your, your work and energy for it. And um, yeah. And I hope, I hope you, you haven't talked with Christina, have you? I haven't. Oh, I think that would be an amazing conversation. Have you talked with Dion Brand? Uh, I'm not going to say anything about that, but let's say that may be oh, something. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah. Well, it's something. Well, I'll be waiting. 
yeah, I think that's going to, I'm, I'm hoping that's going to happen. I'm going to wish all my good energies for you. So I, yes. I would, I'm always uh, up for listening to Dion or Christina yes. or, or yeah, any of those incredible folks. So, Me too. Um, yeah. Well, I'm wishing you a good evening and uh, love and health to you and your beloved. So you as well, Natalie, thank you. Thank you again for being on the show. Thanks, David. Ciao. We were talking today to Natalie Diaz, the author of Postcolonial Love Poem from Grey Wolf. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the fall fundraising campaign to get between the covers on solid footing going into 2021. You can do so at patreon.com slash between the covers, where you can discover a wide variety of potential gifts and rewards for becoming a listener supporter. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who keep the ship afloat. Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogi, Spencer Ruckti in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwena Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>